And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high atop the Crude Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf with special guest Liza Trumby on the Crude Street Podcast! And welcome back, Liza. It's been a while <laughs> since you've been here. Um, it has. I'm still waiting for you to sing some sort of um, welcoming song, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do one a couple of weeks ago without Jonathan, and and I really... I sat here and I rehearsed a couple of things and I thought, I am going to face ridicule that I've never seen before if I try to do anything like that. Jonathan can bring it off, but I'm sorry. I don't sing. I, don't dan I won't dance. Don't ask me. <laughs> Fair. Fair. Well, nobody could see it. If you could just say that you were dancing, that would be I enough. I'm dancing. That's true. Well, I've got to say, it's a delight to have you here for a particular reason. I mean, not just to welcome you back again, which is always a, a lovely thing. But this, what we're going to do today, actually touches on my very original concept for this whole podcast back five years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, which was, I mean, back at, the, back at the time, my favorite podcast in the world was a music magazine podcast called The Word. And they put out a magazine. And what would happen is, the day the new issue was due out... The editors would sit around with a journalist or whatever and, and their freshly printed copies of the magazine that smelt of ink and binding glue. And they would talk about you know, the prominent items in that issue. And right. once upon a time, I had thought that that would be a swell thing to do. But, you know, timing never really worked out. Then Charles passed away and all that. And right. it's probably, it probably wouldn't work out now anyway. But I think... What we're hoping to do, as you know, is to set up a regular thing where we talk to you when the forthcoming books issues are coming out, so we can talk about what's happening in the science fiction field and what interesting new books are coming along that people could be looking forward to in the coming months. Absolutely. So hopefully we will all be ready. Now, I should tell everybody that we're going to be talking about the March issue of Locus, not the May issue of Locus, <laughs> because the March issue of Locus with, with Garth... Nick's on the cover looking as though he's been etched in by somebody you're sort of designing a banknote. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Actually, I think it looks very good for him. Like, it's a good look for him. Oh, uh, what, pres <laughs> what presidential slash dead on a banknote. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought about it looking like a banknote, but it does a bit, doesn't it? Well, it, it has that engraving look to it. So yeah. so, yeah. And that's mostly where you would do it. But uh, No, it's great. Um, so, I guess... Gary and I were thinking, before we get started, tell us, if you can, what goes into compiling a forthcoming books issue, particularly maybe this one, which would be the most diabolic of the, of the year, because it comes on top of just having done the year in review issue. Right. Um, well, about two months before the issue comes out, we start reaching out to all of the publishers and looking at catalogs and... Um, asking them all for their publishing schedules through the next year, basically. And there's a lot of chasing information <laughs> and pestering them and poking them and saying, hey, you have not sent this thing yet. And then um, it all goes down to Carolyn, of course, who's in uh, who's the book indexer extraordinaire here. And she goes through and double-checks everything to make sure it looks accurate, because even the publishers are, um, there are discrepancies in what they say, and often discrepancies when they send it in compared to what they told us before. But um, goes through and puts it all together, but it's this just, it's just like an extra load of work on top of everything else that we do. And then um, she gives me these lists that are like every book that is coming out during that time period, and um, we go through and we select out the books that we will list by author, um, mm. dumping things like reissues and reprints. and um, Yeah, so it's a lot of work. It's a lot of looking at lists, really long, hours and hours of looking right. at lists. But, but it's nice. It lets us keep track of everything that's happening. So, And, and what and sort of... Sorry, Gary. I was just going to say, just for people who, who may not be familiar with it, God help them... Um, <laughs> There are four lists, really. There, there are the lists yes. by author, which, as you say, is selected and, and, and sort of weeds out paperback reprints of something that came out a year earlier. There's the British list by author, and then there's the British and American lists by publisher, which are which very are complete. complete and intimidating, yes. <laughs> they are. They are. And yeah, it's just, 
it's the beginning of our uh, so we have this database of all of the books that are coming out and and that have come out and this is the first time for a lot of these books this is where they get their entry starts so oh you know someone's gonna come out with a book in November 2015 and we start an entry for them and then as it goes progresses toward publication we continue to update the data but this is where that database is where we generate all of our lists our books uh, all of our uh, at the end of the year all of the book summary all of the publisher summary information comes from this database so and presumably and so what's decided to be reviewed and all that kind of thing because you begin to get familiar with it and chase up cover art and all those sorts of things yeah well and this is the the lists by author would be sort of the first look at who we are considering reviewing i'd say and then it continues to get narrowed down past that because they're still pretty extensive lists at this point and sometimes there there are people that you know we might not review them but we still think people should know the books are coming out because they'll be interested and sure well like i guess one question i was going to ask is do you have a clear set of criteria you use for selecting what goes into the selected authors section or is it more of a gut feel as you look at it as you look at a list well there are some people that are grandfathered grandparented <laughs> right um, my battery is threatening to die here that would be bad um there are some people that are just brought in because they have traditionally always appeared and um you know, there's a little bit of like, why are we listing this person? And well, Charles always listed this person. Like, okay, that's why we're listing it. Those those names are becoming fewer at this point. And then there are um, books that we authors that we have reviewed favorably in the past, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then there are the authors that we're hearing things about uh, who are new or who are known for short fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's you know, somebody, an editor said, oh, I'm really excited about this author. And even though we haven't, we're nowhere close to even seeing a galley, we'll throw it on because it's like, well, this is, you know, they're staking their name on it. And so um, there's that. But it is really, in the end, it's sort of, it's Carolyn and I and sure. all of the information that we've sort of gleaned from the field. And is there a, a timing consideration with it? I mean, I look at the books that get they're the dust jackets featured so there's obviously the first thing you notice you know so like anybody who opens the march issue of locus and flicks to the forthcoming books listing will be struck by the cover for the new kate elliott book court of fives Naylor hopkinson's falling in love with hominids hannah ryan yemi's collected fiction neil stevenson's seven eves so mm -hmm. it's almost like you're saying for accurately or inaccurately these are the most interesting books that, are, that, that we're going to see Mm, that's not entirely the case. Yeah. We try to make sure that we list covers from different publishers. So if one publisher had the four most interesting or the eight most interesting books coming out, we would still probably only list, put one of the covers up. So we spread out the covers by publisher, and then within the publishers we're looking for, um, I mean, often we're looking for things that are not the third in the series, but things that are sort of interesting and new coming up. And also, uh, there's a little bit of like, this is what's happening in covers. So, um, like with the UK books, we'll end up with, you know, a year ago, every single book had a medallion on it, or every single book mm. had the same thing. And so we'll try to show those, but also show some other things that are happening in covers. So um, it's, it's actually a little different with the images than it is with the list. Okay. Because of that. And what's the... Are you still there, Gary? What we're going... Yeah, go, go ahead. I was going to say, and, and roughly, what's the... I mean, with the, you know, this list compared to others, I, I doubt that you... Well, I don't know whether you sit down and actually compare them in any way, but you get a feel for the volume and variety of work that's being published through the, this listing? I'm sorry, say that. You cut out in the middle sorry. of that. Can I was going to say, okay. do you get any kind of feeling for the, vo the, the quantity and the variety of work that's being published through the list? Um, through the author list? Yeah, well, just generally through the forthcoming list. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that we, I think we get a good return on what we're, when we ask the different publishers for their lists, I think we're uh, relatively representative of what's happening. I think if people are looking, they want to know what's going on, that's, 
it's there. It may require some looking through and being able to compare with previous editions of forthcoming books, but I do think the information's there. I and think one of the problems yeah, go get, well, ahead, Gary. I find difficult uh, and do find difficult when I'm looking at the forthcoming books list is is first novels or first books. You're right. If somebody has um, a reputation and we're all waiting for the novel, a good example that we're going to be talking about certainly before the end of this podcast is is, is Ken Lose the Grace of Kings. Mm. Um, but if you've got somebody like uh, so, well, book which I liked uh, very much, Silvio Marina Garcia's. Um, Signal to Noise, or is it Jean Marie Brissett's Elysium, uh, mm. where you just don't know who this person is, uh, and and you and I go through this every year because you provide a nice list for us for the for the Crawford Award. But you know, when you're looking at a list of forthcoming books and you see somebody you've never heard of before, you see a name like Sophia Samatar, and you just have to guess, or do you hope that in the case of uh, a publisher that you know, they will get on the horn and tell you, watch out for this one. Well, yeah, I mean, this is really why I end up having these publisher meetings at every convention is because one of the things that I ask everybody is, who is new and interesting that I haven't heard of? And, and they'll always have one or two people, well, not always, sometimes they're like, yeah, I just haven't been picking up anyone new. But if they have somebody new, that's when I get a sense of what they're doing and, um, you know, I remember Marco Palmieri from Tor was very excited about Max Gladstone. And so, um, even though I had never heard the name before when that first rolled around for forthcoming books on the first book, he ended up on the list because I had gotten a big, enthusiastic, this is the author I am most excited about this year, right? So that, that kind of thing is a huge help for me. And that's where... I get that kind of information. And I mean, a lot of times we just miss stuff because if we haven't heard of it and if we haven't heard of a person, we haven't heard of a title coming out, there's not, you don't know, right? They're an unknown name. Um, Sometimes the smaller press, like, uh, you know, if Tachyon is coming out with something, Small Beer's coming out with something, Subterranean's coming out with something, although they tend to do fewer new names, um, there's a, because they're doing such a sort of tightly curated list, I feel like they, uh, they get a little bit more room for like, hmm, you know, here's a new person from, you know, small beer. We should go and take a look online and see what's going on there. So. I would think there's another problem, at least that I perceive, which, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Nope, you're good. No, I was going to no, say Gary? Gary? Oh, the, oh the other, the, the, well, the other thing, the other thing I would be concerned about are not necessarily small presses like that, but but large but presses, large mainstream, mainstream publishers who, who um, just don't, don't care about the science, science fiction. Science. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm thinking of novels like California or Station Eleven. It seems none of the marketing for that to do with us. All I'm getting is echoey rubbish, Gary. Really? Really? Lots and lots of echo. I'm I'm mm. hearing Gary, but it's a little chopped up. Um, but I do think I think that just uh, do we need to do something about it, or shall well, I? Well, Gary, are you using Gary. headphones? I'm getting echoes I'm getting on everybody now. Are you using are you headphones, you? Gary? No, I'm not. No, that will cut my recording. Could you do that? I'll make a note try and cut this little bit out. While Gary, in fact, while Gary's getting headphones, listeners, in case I don't go back and edit this part. Uh, I was going to ask you, Liza, I remember being uh, asked by Charles probably one of the oddest questions about the forthcoming list, and I wonder if you still do it, and that is to look at the list that you have in draft and work out what's not there so you can go and see where it is. Right. Yeah. That is a that is an almost impossible task. <laughs> um, but... And it's especially hard if you have to look at the list over and over again. Yeah. Um, I think in some ways that was why he really liked to be able to hand it off and say, okay, and now you tell me what's not there. Because I have looked at these hundreds of titles too many Mm. times to spot anything anymore, you know. Sure. Um, But it is, uh, he used to always say that he did that. He's like, well, Jonathan tells me what's not there. Like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was this sort of, uh. so in theory, it was this sort of mad ninja skill that didn't really exist 
that would be somewhere along the lines of, I saw uh, Bruce Sterling mention in an interview that he was writing a new novel, and it's right. been two years since he had a novel out. I wonder if he's ready now and we should go and follow it up. Right. Which is yeah. really not, which is a very tricky thing to do, and not only tricky, but hard to do when you have the main list you say in front of you because you're focusing on what you can see. Right. It's and just that, like, you know, that word game taboo. It's yeah. Like, Say the words that you're not looking at. And also, and it's really hard. Yeah. And I'm sure as well you've got that thing where you have, you know, like, if the information doesn't always come in in a consistent way, like if you ask a publisher, give me a list of what you're coming out with. Right. And then you get a separate set of press releases or something. They don't always get compiled together, even if they often do. Right. You know, it's like I was looking... And I, I, it's only been the last few days. Uh, the new Dave Hutchison novel, a follow-up to Europe in Autumn, mm -hmm. which it turns out will come out this November, isn't on the list at the moment. Right. And that's just... And I mean, obviously, this is why you continue... I mean, you could ar argue if you were a... Let's say you're a person who buys the magazine on a one-off basis, uh, you know, or issue by issue as you're interested. You might say, well, hang on, if I buy the January issue of Locus with, or, or the December issue of Locus with a forthcoming books listing into it, I don't need to buy it for another year, do I? But, but the no, that's wow. totally not true, though, because the information changes constantly. Exactly. And so what, what you find then is that, I mean, like right now, we're doing, we're going to talk about the March list in a minute, and it's going to be very, very accurate through till about August. Right. And reasonably accurate through to October. Not that accurate through November, December, maybe, and will then get stretched through to January and February or whatever as, each, as the next issue comes out. Right. And the larger the press, the more accurate it will be yeah. as a generalization further out. But also, sometimes the larger houses are less, like, they'll be like, well, did you, didn't you just go and look at our online catalog? <laughs> and and, yeah. and yeah. those can be terrible to navigate and incomplete information. You have to, I mean, you have to assume, uh, so one of our... Um, editorial assistants here will say, um, well, I found an error in forthcoming books, and or I found an error in this thing, and, he, and I'll be like, well, where did you look? And he's like, well, I went and looked at the publisher's catalog. And I was like, okay, who do you imagine does the data entry for the publisher's catalog? <laughs> because it may not actually be the person who knows the most about books <laughs> at that point. Because it isn't. I was, it isn't. I, uh, and that's no. a very hard thing for people to, you know, or like, well, on Amazon it says this, but who entered that information into Amazon? Um, you know, Amazon is notoriously inaccurate um, with publication dates and titles and even publishers. So and page numbers. And page yeah. exactly. never, never close to what it turns out. Yes, it's funny how, how many uniform length books publishers publish according to to Amazon. Right. Let me ask you both a yeah, quick question because I thought we'd maybe segue into talking about the books because what we're hoping to do is give the listeners to the podcast not just a great reason to go and pick up an issue of Locus, but also an idea of what's interesting to be excited about in the coming months ahead. Right. Well, so, let's start with some titles. Go well, before on, we do one thing, just very quickly, okay, Gary, okay. I want to ask you very quickly. When you looked over the list, this list, what feeling did you come away from? Was there a lot you were excited about reading? Or were you kind of going, well, yeah, there's a few things I can pick out? Um, I always find the... Well, okay, I have two reactions to that. And it's your fault and it's Liza's fault. <laughs> there are things... There are things... Yes, there are things I'm looking forward to reading. And there are always a few things, oh, I bet they're going to make me read that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. So, maybe, maybe yeah. a little bit of both. Um, how about so, you, Liza? Well, actually, I was I was really struck by how much, and it's not a surprise because it it happens this way year after year. But how much is coming out in August and September? Yeah. That is interesting. But that's that's like peak publishing. Yes, right? it is. getting ready for Christmas. So, yeah, so you, they, I can definitely see that there is a lot more late summer, fall, um, but in that area that I'm interested in. But there are still, there are things coming out. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, even just looking at Gary's review columns for um, the next month, there are some things that are exciting. Yeah. So. Well, Gary, do you want to kick us off? You were about to say something. Well, since we're talking about the, uh, I guess it's the April column you're talking about now. Mm -hmm. uh, 
obviously a lot. I've already mentioned that Ken Liu's uh, the, the Grace of Kings, the first in a very large, large-scale trilogy, large volumes. I think this is over 600 pages in the first volume, which is frankly not the sort of thing that I'm attracted to. Because it's military, or oh, because it's a, because it's a thick trilogy, and Ken Liu mm -hmm. writes these wonderfully crafted short stories that are elegantly sort of origami-shaped things. The Paper Menagerie comes to mind, obviously. Mm -hmm. So the question is, can he do this sort of thing, and can he do it in a way that will draw me through it? And right. and he did. Yeah. And, and and what I thought was fascinating is that the skills that he displays as a short story writer are there in the way he constructs the novel. How my prediction, in, just my prediction, is that some epic fantasy readers are going to be confused by by this, the the narrative structure of this and the storytelling techniques in it. Because they're more complicated than a standard fantasy, or he he focuses on minutia of character. He focuses on the sort of character development anecdotes um, that you would expect of a short story writer. And mm. there is, uh, for example, there is a scene which is, I would think, would be catnip to any epic fantasy writer, where an entire city is trashed and burned and looted and pillaged. It's a paragraph. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one paragraph because that's not what he wants to spend his time talking about. Right. And I thought I thought it was great myself. I thought it was fascinating. So we're going to be basically t t you know, being insiders with our sort of, well, I've already read that. Ha, ha, ha. Well, there's well, a little oh. bit. I haven't read it yet. I'm excited. <laughs> I haven't read it either yet. It's on and my this is, this is 640 pages of this, too, yes. and the first episode in a trilogy. It is. Right, exactly. And one that's definitely on my list after the uh, short stories for the last few years as well. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was on yours as well, Liza. Yeah, no, it is. And is this... Is this the first saga book we've seen? No, it's not. It's the third one, actually, because it's been preceded by a uh, by a Robert Jackson Bennett novel, I think it was, maybe, City of Stars or oh, something? City of Stairs. Stairs. And then it's also preceded by the latest uh, Genevieve Valentine novel, a science fiction novel oh, called right. Persona, Persona. Uh, which is just out, in fact, uh, and then about two weeks, it hits the stores. Right, that's that's still on our forthcoming list also. Yes. What's up, great. So, well, if that's your, maybe we'll go around a book we're each looking forward to, to give it some kind of structure. So, okay. what would be your next pick, Liza? Um, well, I mean, there's The Water Knife coming up. Indeed. So, so that's, a, that'll which is, be. In, which is what? The Palabatchical would be from, it's coming out in May yeah. from Knopf. And um, I haven't I haven't had a chance to read it, but I'm excited about it. I, uh, I'm still, I'm still pretty much fully on board with his writing. And, and I think he's, uh, he's branching out and changing in ways. And the last one was much more mainstream. Um, and I don't know, I actually don't know a ton about The Water Knife. Well, actually, you've stepped into one the, into the book that I'm actually reading right now. Mm, so, so this is Paolo's second adult science fiction novel following on from The Wind-Up Girl. Uh, so it's been some years. It is directly in the same territory as a story of his called The Tamarisk Hunter. Mm -hmm. It is a dark, post -apo well, ap apocalyptic novel of climate change set in a devastated North America where everybody is scrounging for uh, for water, and it has to do with the politics and economics around that. It's actually Which is now fully his wheelhouse. <laughs> well, I, absolutely, and mm -hmm. it's actually now that I think about it, the second great novel of water politics that I can think of in science fiction after Stan Robinson's Pacific Age, and probably mm -hmm. the third to do with that and sewage, which is an odd kind of a combination, but that's all in there. And my only caveat about the water knife is that I read it the wrong way. Oh, I read it immediately after my n personal number one pick for uh, of, of my to read list, which was Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson, mm. uh, <laughs> wh which I read about two or three weeks ago, and which I love to death. It's a great book, I think. Uh, just to sort of really lay it out there and not sort of give myself any room to move later on when everybody else hates it, and it turns out that it was the one book they didn't like, right? Uh, and it's a, a fascinating, interested, multifaceted starship generation novel about basically the flaws in the starship generation concept. Mm. 
and having read this book and been moved by it and found it probably one of Stan's most fast-paced, engaging novels that I've come across and probably in some ways most reminiscent of one of my favorite one of his books, Antarctica. Hmm. Um, to go from the ending of that book into The Water Knife in Perth in the middle of a hot, arid summer was not the most pleasant reading experience. Did you, you needed an amuse-bouche in between. I, I, I think I did. I needed like an emergency Terry Pratchett novel or something. But I, I, I have to have, I have to mention I had a similar reaction. Well, I'm, I'm still reading The Water Knife as well, but I, uh, so, so, so I go back and I, I'm, I'm reading it in bed and I, this is the second time in my life this has ever happened to me. I, had to get up and get a glass of water halfway through the, <laughs> the first few chapters because it is the driest, <laughs> most thirst. I mean, it, it, he should he should get sponsorship from Dasani or something for this novel because <laughs> it is going to sell bottled water like nothing else. Well, well, um, well, certainly I find it's the book right now that I'm reading for, looking for a crack in the clouds. <laughs> you know, I'm looking for a little ray of sunshine, and I do remember years ago Paolo saying that whilst with his YA novels he thought that he needed to offer that, he wasn't sure with his adult novels that he did. So I'm waiting to see where we go. But it's it's very it's a fascinating book. I think it's fascinating. It's much darker. I have one complaint about um, the publicity for it, and I I like to complain about people who write publicity letters. But one of the publicity letters that Canop sent out was something. There's a quotation in it. Think. Roman Polanski's Chinatown as written by Michael Crichton. Now that is so wrong on so many <laughs> levels. In addition yeah. to which, this is, as you say, it's one of the most powerful global warming novels we're likely to see. And they're comparing it to Michael Crichton who wrote this piece of garbage called State of Fear, which is a denialist global warming novel right. uh, 10 years ago. And it's, it's, this is completely the opposite of, <laughs> of, of what Crichton... It's, oh. it, it's just... We'll talk about this. I didn't want to bring well, yeah, this up if well, we have mm -hmm. Paolo on the podcast. I don't want to embarrass him, but that's really dumb publicity. Wow. But anyway, we need to move along or we'll never get through a list. Gary, yes, quick, what, what do you have next? Well, obviously, I know nothing about it, but obviously there's going to be a new Neil Stevenson novel, which has a palindrome for a title, Seven Eves. Oh, yeah, I didn't even spot that. Yep. I kept trying to figure out why that was run together like that. That's fine. And it's a big science fiction-y, high-concept SF novel, apparently. Sounds I, like it. I have to say, it's on, it's on my... I'm probably not going to read that list. It is. Oh? Oh, I think it's going to be a major book. Don't get me wrong. I think it's going to be one of yeah. the books of the year, probably, almost certainly. And all those sorts of good things, absolutely. But it's somewhere... It, it's probably about four billion pages long, right? Right. And, 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 and I've got to read a, hundred, a metric ton of short fiction. So well, Reemdy was shorter than Anathem, right? So it can't, <laughs> like, we can only hope that it's... Well, I, I know that Amazon are not to be believed, but they said it's about 800 pages, I think. Oh, that's a novella for him. <laughs> <laughs> and I do know he's very fast-paced. It's very fast-paced, so... It, it moves very fast, yes. Okay. So, Liza, mm. what have you got no, next? I'm up. I'm up. You're up. Um... Well, let me see. You you imposed a date restriction at the last a, minute. There, a little, so. just because I wanted to leave us something else to talk about in the future. But if you know something in the far future you want to talk about, whatever you want is fine. That's just on me, not on everybody else. Right. Well, let's see. There's... Um, hmm. All these are like August and September... Uh, Nettie has another one coming out in May from Daw, the Book of Phoenix, right? Which we, yes. I think that we have. That was on have, my list. Yeah. Definitely on my um, list. I don't know. I don't really know anything about it, but I'm, I'm, I like the Lagoon well enough, and and would be happy to read another book by her. So this is on my. This is a prequel. Book. Yeah, prequel of sorts pre to Who Fears Death. Yes. And mm. relates to a set of short stories that were published, I think, on Lightspeed, maybe, or Clark's World. Clark's World. Um, and should be really, really interesting. I think it's it's a, one of my top handful of books I'm looking forward to at the moment. Um, and a great. I, yeah, I was talking. I was talking to Nettie about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago, and it, yeah, it, the Book of Phoenix is alluded to in Who Fears Death, and it clearly is kind of a uh, a back. It, it 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 basically sets up that world. Yeah. And I, th I think it should be absolutely fascinating because Who Fears Death is going to be a hard act to follow. Although technically, right. we should point out. That he, she followed with Lagoon, 
which is only coming out in its U.S. edition, uh, I think oh, from right. Saga Press. Yeah. Right. Well, so, that's, so Lag- that's, yeah, Lagoon's that a, is, that's still on the list of things coming out for anyone in the U.S. Yes. Right, exactly. And that's July, um, I think, from Saga also, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Th- th- though is eligible for the Hugo Awards should you choose to nominate it. That's Because it came out uh, outside. I think it'll get that two-year uh, sliding you know, nomination rule thing coming in. I am as curious as heck about The Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro, which is apparently his fantasy novel that he doesn't want anybody to read as a fantasy novel. That's what he said in an interview in the New York Times, and Peter Schott really? picked that up. And yes. He said, yeah, he said this, is, this is an Arthurian, it's the medieval British fantasy that has ogres and dragons in it. And he said in an interview in the New York Times that, I'm afraid people will take it as a fantasy novel. And <laughs> this is one of your WTF moments. Uh, what are we supposed to do with it? It's obviously a dreadfully clever allegory, Gary. Well, the thing is, I've, I've, I've seen uh, uh, blog posts and tweets and, uh, and comments from people who have met him, people like uh, Malcolm Edwards, and apparently he's been to uh, some science fiction conventions. He's been very cordial about the field. He didn't seem to be offended when Never Let Me Go was uh, regarded by some as a cloning novel. Uh, So this strikes me as one of those embarrassing kind of marketing conscious remarks um, that he's making just to not scare his usual readership away. Do you don't think it could just be that he, it's literally about how he wants the book read? I don't think so. I, 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 because there was a long review of it in the New York Times. Um, I've read a couple of reviews of it now. And it looks to me like there's no getting away from this. It's a straight-ahead fantasy. Um, and I think he wants people to... I think he wants to leave open the reading of it as being a non-fantasy, if you, know, if you get that. Right. Um, uh, because that is a strategy. And it's, it's more common among publishers and publicists than it is among novelists. But there is this strategy, and, uh, and, and you can see it in the publicity for, for novels like Station Eleven in California, that we, we, we would like to get science fiction and fantasy readers, but we don't want to say anything that would scare away grown-ups. Right. <laughs> well, someone was just talking to me the other day about why books like California or um, like the, the Michelle 11, Faber... Or, yeah. yeah, or the um, just that these things come out from mainstream, and I think you were trying to say that when we had a little glitch with the um, recording, yeah, but that that the, the, the these houses that have primarily mainstream mainstream literary novels aren't going to let us know that the books are coming out, and I'm yeah, not going right. to see those publishers or those editors. At conventions, I'm not going to be in regular communication with them, and so sometimes those just show up in final, and it's like, whoa, you know, yeah, it is. That's a very tricky thing for us to keep track of because that requires keeping an eye on absolutely everything. So that's a yeah, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> okay, so I'm not sure who who are we up to next. Is it me? Um, well, you. Uh, hey, you haven't. Uh, sure, it's yeah. you. Well, okay. Uh, th- this is odd. I'm going to like clump a few things together right now. Um, I edit the Best of the Year series every year, as you, you both know, and there are uh-huh. three or four new Best of the Year series premiering this year. Paula Garan, Garan will be editing a new Best Novellas line, uh, which is what should be interesting. Uh, John Joseph Adams and Joe Hill are doing their Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. And then there's two others from small presses that I'm quite interested in. Nisi Scholl is editing the year's illustrious feminist science fiction and fantasy. And mm-hmm. whilst the title of the book is a little bit like fingers down a chalkboard to me, I'm really fascinated to see what she and the Aqueduct team will come up with to highlight and promote in the context of that. Mm. And then there's, in my mind, almost the the corollary, the, the antithetical volume that, that balances it. And that is... David Afshararad, a chap I'm, I've not heard of before, is editing the year's best military and adventure SF for Bane. Mm. And I think it might even be the year's best military adventure SF and space opera for Bane. And I'm just fascinated to see what angle he will bring and what slant on the field he will present 
uh, and the kind of work you'll promote because one of the, there are all sorts of background issues in the field. We're not going to go into them right now, but it's always interesting, I find, to get a different lens to look at the field and yeah. to see what sort of standard of excellence that this particular editor will promote and bring bring forward because hopefully what it will, he will do is he will highlight a whole range of work that we're not familiar with and give us a different way of looking at the field in 2015. Do you think that a, a, an editor like that uh, is, is to some extent reacting to the stories that appear in the general, in, in your year's best, Jonathan, or in Gardner's or in Rich Horton's? Is there a sense that, well, we're going to contain only stories that our people like, uh, whether or not they would ever show up in another year's best anthology? Well, I'm going I'm to cut the guy some slack right out of the box and say probably to some degree every year's best editor is editing for their people. Well, that's true. They, they may not stop and think of them as their people. They may not pile them in a room, but they've got a particular way of looking at the field, and people who are sympathetic with that will gravitate to them. I suspect, and I, you know, remember this is coming. Banger, a major publishing house. This isn't a glib kind yeah. of a thing to do. No, no. Um, I suspect what it is is they're looking. They're saying, we believe that there is excellence in a traditional form of science fiction that's not being recognized by the field at large. So we're going to create a platform to recognize that excellence, and here it is. Right. And the fantastic thing about that for the people who are not convinced about the excellence in that area is, here is the first stopping point, and you can have a look. And, and maybe you'll be proven wrong, hopefully, and you'll see something different. And it's a way for them to, to find their voice. I mean, to me, rather than, I mean, to be blunt and to tie it into the rest of the world for a second, rather than being a facet of sad puppiness, if you know what that is out there, listeners, I see it as being the opposite positive side of it. It's actually engaging the... Um, the, um, the the promotional the um, the, the critical mar arm of our field to to speak more about that side of it. So I think it's it's an, I'm quite happy about it. It's not I think it's a gr a good thing to have happen, and mm. I'm just very ex interested to see what the quality of the book will be like. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I think that's right. I want to I'm going to pick up on what you said about uh, you, you mentioned before getting into the military SF, the Nisi Shaw years best illustrious feminist science fiction and fantasy, which, which struck my eye along with the uh, Anne and Jeff Vandermeer's mm. Sisters of the Revolution, a feminist speculative science fiction anthology. Um, which, and, and both of those, I'm looking forward to them because, if I'm not mistaken, these are the first two fairly major anthologies that are described as feminist science fiction rather than as science fiction by women. I mean, the, the sort of benchmark that we've had, for, really, we've had Women of Wonder, We've had lots of anthologies of stories by women, uh, which is not the same thing as identifying an anthology as an anthology of feminist science fiction. Right. Which first, which first of all is not necessarily going to be fiction by women, and secondly is, 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 is not going to necessarily attempt to represent the range of women's writing. It seems to me feminist science fiction implies a viewpoint, which is much more specific than most of the anthologies we've seen on that theme. Have we seen... We haven't seen a table of contents. Not yet, no. But no, I, I have not seen one. But I will say, Gary, that if anybody is going to thread that particular needle, it's going to be Jeff and Anne. You know, they're very, very gifted and diligent uh, editors and anthologists. So it would be fascinating right. to see what they do come up with. I've not seen a table of contents yet. And to see whether they do attempt to thread the needle between feminist and written by women which are very very similar but not necessarily identical exactly right. so i'm looking forward to it and your, your, your choice eliza well no i was i was going to ask gary to talk about um affinities when does affinities come out i think affinities is march or april but it's a new robert charles wilson novel and uh i, I he's he's one of those people that i um i will read most of, of pretty much anything he writes not necessarily because of the science fiction content. He's, he's very skilled at coming up with these vaulting, sense of wonder, spectacular um, things, as in spin, for example. But this is not that. This does not have a, a ter terrifically radical science fiction idea in it. The reason I will read his novels is that if he were not writing science fiction at all, I would probably read his novels. He writes very <laughs> believable characters, very believable family relationships. Um, and, 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 and this one is... This one is, I would recommend it on the basis of its being a good novel of character, more than on the basis of its being a, a, a sort of 
far out science fiction concept, which it really isn't. I mean, it's really a kind of uh, near future social media uh, personality testing thing that. that right. That, that it has a real social experiment feel to it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's uh, in, in in some ways it's more in Daryl Gregory territory than it is in the territory of things like sure. uh, Spin or Darwinia, where you find out that oh, you know geniuses from the end of time has ca have caused World War uh, have caused Europe to di disappear before World War One, uh, or, or or that the time outside the bubble enclosing the Earth is passing at a million times faster rate than it is here. Those are huge, huge concepts. But what sold the novels were the characters, and he's always been that. And the character, as, as a novel of character, this is as good as, uh, as, as anything he's done. It just doesn't have a really big idea in it. Right. Well, and there's also, speaking of Daryl, he's got um, his first YA out next, this month, March? Yeah. Right. Harrison Squared? Yes. Which is nice, but it's sort of a... It's a. It is a. I mean, he always does something different. Um, but this is, I think, the first time he's done a young adult yes. novel. It, and interestingly, a prequel to the um, novella that came out from Tachyon. Um, we are all completely fine, which has the adult characters, which mm. is sort of an interesting idea. Um, I don't know how readers will bounce from the novella to the young adults. <laughs> um, well, Gary has. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, one of the things, and, and we're we're going to we're going to pick on Daryl when he's on the podcast about this. He, he's he's fascinating because he never does the same thing twice, um, and there is a connection between this and um, and the novella he did. There's not much of a connection uh, between this and After Party, and there's certainly not much of a connection between this and Raising Stony Mayhall. Uh, I think the idea. The idea of doing a YA Lovecraft novel, uh, I'm, I'm just amazed. Maybe somebody has done it before, but it strikes me, why hasn't this happened before? And he does it very well. He gets the outsider um, feel of being in a strange school. The, the, the basic premise of this novel is the basic premise of any number of R.L. Stein novels. Uh, you know, you're, going to a, you're going to a new high school and everybody there is a vampire or a zombie or an alien or something. Uh, he starts off with that and follows it through with what's really good humor. And one of the things that I think, it, you see it in his short fiction probably more than his novels, but Daryl is a pretty good humorous writer. Uh, and I think that satirical sort of ironic, sardonic tone comes out in this, and it, it, it should do well. Uh, but whether any, first of all, the novel is going to be read by a lot more people than probably saw the Tachyon novella, so I'm not sure that connection is going to be made in the minds of many readers. Right. Um, well, and it's and, a YA out from Tor, which is a funny right. thing, because Tor doesn't strictly do YAs, yeah. and it's not from Tortine, it's just from Tor. I know, that was something that's puzzled me as well. Uh, but they've been doing that. I mean, the, the Carl Schrader came out, and yes. it was a, a YA with Lockstep last year, right? So. Yes. And a good one, too. Um, okay. We've already not, uh, recommended two books that are coming out in May. Paolo Bacigalupi's The Water Knife and Nettie Okorafor's The Book of Phoenix. I'd and add, Neil Stevenson. And Neil Stevenson, yes. Mm -hmm. I would add Hanu Ryan Yemi's collected short fiction, which is coming from Taki on that month. Onto the well, a number of collections, actually. Yes. Uh, one, yeah. one of the, it's a, a snappily titled Collected Fiction, which I thought was inventive. Um, and so one assumed that it collects his fiction. Uh, and ha ha whilst Hanu is best known for the recently completed trilogy that he wrote, uh, I actually think he's a more varied writer at shorter lengths, and mm. I'm really looking forward to see what they pack into it. I've I edited a few of these stories originally, but there's a lot there that I'm not familiar with. It looks really interesting. Yeah, and China Mieville, not in May, but in August, has a collection, he does. first US of a collection coming out. I'm not sure when the UK... It's it around, is, but uh, I was, same same time, roughly, yeah. There's one thing I was noticing is a large number of interesting-looking collections coming out. Now, of course, I'm looking for them and can well, find... Well, no, you're them. right. Not only is there an increased number of uh, short, you know, short fiction collections, but interestingly to me, from major publishers as well at the moment. 
you know so obviously three moments of an explosion the china mievel collection you're talking about is coming out from uh-huh. his his major publishers later in the year paper menagerie and other stories ken lu's debut collection will come out from mm-hmm. from simon schuster's saga uh one of my other picks of the books that i'll come around to would be uh is a garth nix collection called to hold the bridge that's mm-hmm. coming out from harper in in june as well there actually are there's some great collections coming i it was it's one of the oddities about the for the february issue of locus which, which contains and uh, the year in review issue was that this year we perhaps rec- recommended a few fewer coll- short story collections than we had in previous years. And I yeah. think you're seeing the reason for that now. We are coming yeah, back around. Coming out this year. <laughs> exactly, yes. I think you're going to find mm-hmm. that come the February 2016 issue, we will be recommending a boatload of short story collections for very right. good reason. Right. No, I agree. Because it's. The in, especially in the late summer and fall, again, there are just a ton mm. coming out. Um, Mary Rickert has one coming out later, and um, yeah, that's going to be a, that's an odd one actually. I'm glad you mentioned it. I mean, I realize it's in that future period that I wasn't going to talk about too much, but it's oh, interesting yeah. to me because it's new and collected fiction. So I assume it will include stories that were originally collected in either uh, was it Holiday or in her first collection as well as previously on collected work. So that's going to be quite interesting. Mm. Yeah. Now who's who's doing this? Small Beer. Small Beer. Oh, really? Okay. And this complements, uh, of course, her just being nominated for the Nebula for the Mothers of Voorhees, which, uh-huh. uh, which I did hear rumor may get its own print edition as well. Oh, that'll be cool. Which would be oh, lovely, be which is a great story. So anyway, who's next up? Me. I'm next up. Yeah, I like that. That's ah, oh, I love the sound of my own voice. Actually, I don't. I never listen to this. Okay, April. I'll take a step back. If we're near collections, this is going to be also, I think, the year of Ian McDonald, because Ian ah. was going to deliver not one, not two, mm. but three new books in 2015. Uh, the delayed from last year, but hopefully coming out in April, are two new collections from PS Publishing in the UK who are a wonderful and redoubtable and long-standing outfit, but occasionally, you know, small press schedules slip. But Uh they have The Best of Ian MacDonald and a book called Mars Stories, which will be all of the pendant stories to uh, Aries Express. And I blanked on the first book's title, even though I can see the cover. So his Mars Stories. I mean, my only quibble or caveat about them having done that is several of those stories would belong in the best of in my mind. But... Should be a an absolutely you know essential book pair of books and something we'll talk about in future podcasts more is it relate they don't relate direct to, directly to but come in the same year as his f- brand new novel Luna which is one of a couple uh, of new science fiction novels coming out I think from Tor in the U S and Golans in the U K I think first from Tor in the U S which is an interesting step yes. to the, and with um, it relates to a story of his called the Fifth Dragon that appeared in a book of mine uh, Reach for Infinity. And that I'm really, really looking forward to. It should be great. We should also pause for a moment to boast about the Coot Street Podcastings because, Liza, you and I were in the same Locus interview when Ian McDonald, when he said that he got the idea of Luna from listening to one of our podcasts <laughs> in which we were, we were complaining about nobody writes moon colony novels anymore. <laughs> That's a good idea. Right. And he wanted, did he want to write Dallas on. On the moon? Dallas, yeah, Dallas mm. on the moon, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, I have to say, the, the short story, the, that short story, and then he's writing, actually writing me another one that relates to it right now, uh, was enormous fun. And, I mean, I, I just love his stuff. So it should be, should be great. Gary, go next. Well, the next one is a fairly obvious one, I suppose. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure how to say the name, but it's, the second volume in either Sushin Lu's or Lu Sujin's um, trilogy that began with a three-body problem called The Dark Forest, which is coming out from Tor. I, it's not, this one is not translated by Kin Lu, I don't believe. No, it's not. I, I, it has a different translator. But it still was... Uh, a, 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 this, this, is, this is the kind of imperialist attitude that we all have when you read a Chinese science fiction novel and you think... It's going to be an allegory, or it's going to be something that did in the, that, 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 that Americans and Brits and Australians did in the 50s. It's, it's a new science fiction novel with really new ideas in it. It's one of the few first novels in a trilogy that telegraphs 
the end of the trilogy. I have no idea what's... I mean, I, I, I have a pretty good sense of where this trilogy is going to end up, but I have no sense of where the second volume is going to be. And so mm -hmm. I'm absolutely fascinated as how he, he gets from, from the three-body problem to where it, it seems like he's going. Um, and uh, I, I'm very curious about it. I'm also very curious to see what, uh, what another translator looks like because I've begun paying attention to translators lately. And Ken is obviously an enormously, an enormously talented uh, writer in English to begin with. I forget the name of the translator of the second volume. I think Ken translated the third volume again. Um, but Do so we know I'm, why I'm, they switched it around? I don't. Did, we talked to Ken on the podcast. Do you remember, Jonathan, whether he said anything about that? No. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, it may have been his own schedule. I mean, he was trying to finish his, you know, epic novel at the I, I, time that the... I think that might have been it. I mean, he did. I mean, the, I've spoken to a couple of translators, and Ken touched on it as well. I mean, writing a doing a translation is almost as much work as writing a novel yourself. Right. And yeah, I'm not getting... I know he's translating the third book in the series as well. Right. So doing that, doing um, the Grace of Kings, meeting all the short story commitments, everything else. Probably, my guess is it was just a, a matter of timing, particularly since he is also the primary evangelist for Chinese science fiction in the US anyway, right. and is translating stories for everybody all over the shop all the time. So, you know, I'm sure it was a, a scheduling thing as well as just a, 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 I need to, to get, get my head up above water. I have a quick question for both of you because we're, what we're talking about now are really books that are potential 2016 Hugo or Nebula nominees, and obviously we're in a period right now when we're looking at 2015 nominees, which we all have to... Do either of you think that the three-body problem is going to make the locust ballot, going to make the uh, Hugo ballot? Oh. Lars, you can go first. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, that is a good question. Uh, I think it could. I do think it could. I mean, I think, I, I think Gibson will be on there, the girl, yeah. and I think Scalzi will probably be on there. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I'm trying to look because now I've got both fantasy and science fiction vying for the place instead of just broken out by either one or the that's, other. That's and Leckie will yeah. be on the ballot. And Leckie will be there. I With the think. second novel? Yeah, Ancillary Sword, yeah. And what about Vandermeer? Long shot, but maybe. I, th I think both... Uh, th th there are any number of very worthy nominees for the award, so in a sense we're not talking about worthiness right now. Mm -hmm. I think Jeff is a good chance, but was always, always a better chance for the Nebula. I think that Sushin Lu... Is, or you say Lucien is a outsider, worthy, but but slightly less likely than. And I, I agree with you. I think there's a very good chance that the peripheral by uh -huh. Bill Gibson will be on there. I think Ancillary Justice uh, is sword. virtually a certainty. A sword is it? Ancillary sword. Sword. Sword, sword. Ancillary sword. They all have the same title. Um, and then then from there, I mean, possibly, yeah, probably the John Scalzi novel. Yes. And I'm not sure about the others, because, the of course, there are other... Sorry, what? Joe Walton's My Real Children. No, I don't think it's got any chance at all. Yeah. Not because, no. Really? Well, okay. Again, we're not talking worthiness. Joe's wonderful, and she is justifiably loved by the Hugo voting popul population. But we also now have a political campaign in the field when it comes to Hugo's uh, with Sad Puppy, and they definitely affected the previous ballot, and they probably will affect this one. And we're only going to get five novels at most on there. And so the stuff that might have just got on there, will it'll struggle in every category, you know. I mean, so something like the the Lucic Seasings book, something like Joe Walton's novel, they're going to have a harder time in 2015 than they would have before. Right. And so I think it's a little unlikely uh, that, particularly since as well, I expect the Hugos to skew a little bit more traditional this year. As we're back in the United States, and I know that we still have the Luncon voters voting, or nominating at least, but we're back in, in uh, the States. We're at Spokane in Washington with a smaller voting population, a slightly more traditional voting population. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm for all that I think that it possibly should, I think it will struggle. 
Well, so let me, who, let me, do, who, who do you think will be on there then? Yeah, who do you think will be? On? I haven't actually given it any thought yet. I have to write my, do my ballot. <laughs> I've got to I've got to write my ballot. And, and we're supposed to be talking about what's coming up, Gary. But, 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 but before we leave this, yeah. so, because you you mentioned you mentioned the sad puppy thing, which was a whether it was a factor last year or not remains to be seen. They ended up below no awardance in some categories. But why do people grieve about that? I mean, if you're talking about uh, Joe Walton is beloved in the community, it's absolutely true. Uh, Sushin Liu is, is, is an important non-English language thing. If somebody is worried about sad puppies, why doesn't somebody come up with um, uh, a happy kitty ballot? Um, or, Can I tell you or, why, or Gary? No, I'll tell you why. why. There's nothing wrong with the works, particularly that the sad puppy ballot wants to promote. Nothing at all. And if enough people believe that a Larry Correa novel or an Eric Flint novel or anything else should be on the Hugo ballot and they all vote for it, I think that is an absolutely reasonable thing in the context of an open, popular, democratic vote, right? What's wrong is they've got a ballot and they're promoting it. There's What's no, there's not, but I don't think we should, I don't think the right answer to you're doing the wrong thing is to do the same wrong thing. That's a good point. That's an, okay, I, I stand you know, correct. You know, and if, all it ha if, if Anne Leckie wins with ancillary justice uh, in 2014 because enough people thought the book was excellent, which plainly they did because it was reflected everywhere else, and there was yeah. no coherent ballot saying vote one Anne Leckie, that's good. The right. fact that my I got 55 people to buy a membership and vote exactly the same so I could stack it, that's just distorting the process. It's not what I would actually completely endorse on that side of fandom, which would be mobilizing your voters just to vote for the stuff they care about. And then if it works out that those b works float to the top, good good on them, you know? Right. Go say, go vote, go nominate. Get out there. Do, yeah. Go do the things and not like, here is the list of books. Exactly. Because I think in the end, it just, it devalues. Yeah. The, the award itself and and it doesn't it doesn't do anyone any good in that sense like look at how we can skew the vote doesn't yeah. help yeah. anyone you know saying go out there and vote for the books that you love you we know you love you know books by these authors or books by this publisher or these kinds of books go go vote yeah and that's I, a much okay. more reasonable well, okay. thing yeah. and can i just say let me modify my position in that, that maybe that's what the happy kitty ballad should yeah. be yeah. is vote for books that you've read and that you love but don't vote for books that you've been told to read in order to vote for them. Absolutely. I mean, I was going to say, this is why I applaud Jim Minns. This is why I applaud Tony Weisskopf. Because mm -hmm. Bain, who have, whether they're part of Sad Puppy or not, have been co-opted by Sad Puppy. They've responded to Sad Puppiness by starting their own awards to help promote work in the area they publish and by uh -huh. having their own Best of the Year. If they're not in exclusionary, they're picking an area to recommend. So they're they're working to highlight this the kind of work that they think is excellent in that area that's being overlooked. You can yeah. only applaud that, and if people vote accordingly, that's brilliant. Now, if if by act getting more and more parts of our field active voting and nominating, it means that some of my favorite work doesn't make the ballot, that makes me uh -huh. a slightly sad puppy. <laughs> but that's okay. That's the way it works. That's the okay sad puppy, right? You know, I looked at I look at every and awards ballot like, and I go, my favorites aren't there sometimes. Well, and that's the part where it's like, it's great that all of this stuff exists and everybody gets to find something they like in it. You know, that's that's the part we should be celebrating, that yes. there are different kinds of writing and not the part where we should say, where people should be getting punished or things should be getting skewed or, yeah. you know. Absolutely. And the other thing as well is, we shouldn't be able to look at the Locus forthcoming list in the March 2015 issue coming to a bookstore near you. Uh and be able to say, oh, look, um, Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson will be on the 2016 Hugo ballot. It should be uh -huh. up to question. People should be thinking about it, and maybe it will. It's certainly worthy, in my opinion. But everybody else has an opinion, too. And right. there's a slate of great books published by Aqueduct and Twelfth Planet and Gollants and Tor and Subterranean, and they all get to get considered, and Bane and you know Nightshade and everybody else out there. Solaris, yeah. everybody. So, you know, anyway, let's get back to our, our, our topic here, Gary. You ran us off for a second. Okay, what else, given, their time, was, given that was, our time is running out, believe it, is, it or not, it uh, you need to give is us it, a couple more books to recommend, and then we'll point everybody forward. Is okay. it my turn? Yes, yeah, sure. Eliza. Eliza, Eliza I think let's it's go Eliza. Um, oh, well, I'm not ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> I did, no, I did Sushi and Lou the last time, so I yeah. know it's your turn. Uh, well, let's see. 
What else? We're almost running out of things that I have okay. highlighted here. Yeah, because we did that whole... Yes. Right, we did all the collections and we did the affinities. Um, I, you know, I haven't had a chance to read the new Genevieve Valentine. Did you review it, Gary? Mm-hmm. I did. Persona? Uh, uh, Persona is, it's interesting because in a sense, Persona is a little bit like Genevieve Valentine's version of what After Party was for Daryl Gregory. Mm. Uh, and we're going to do a near future kinetic nonstop thriller. Uh, that, that that could be. It's it's not like her other work at all. It's it's very efficiently done. After Party was very efficiently done, and I think it's um, it's it, it's in that same field of let's you know uh, let let's use a couple of not very radical science fiction ideas to depict a new future a, n- a near future, which um, really begins to look like um, a, a, a kind of Robert Ludlum near future. It's a kind of burn identity near future. Uh, and it's very efficiently done. I, I mean, I thought After Party was very efficiently done and was, um, w- was powerful for what it was. But it seems to me that there's, based on two examples, which is really hard to uh, generalize from, it seems to me that there is this sense of real science fiction writers, that is, people who understand the nature of science fiction, taking on the near future thriller, which characteristically has been almost an anti-science fiction genre. Um, mm. and, 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 and doing bo- both are very intelligent novels both are very thoughtful novels both are not like anything we've seen from those authors before and so that, that's kind of why I saw the, 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 the parallel to, to Daryl's novel What makes you call it an anti-science fiction genre? Or at least oh, no, previous- the, the thriller okay the, uh, this, is, this is a lecture I've had in the back of my mind for years the, 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 the near future thriller the Michael Crichton thriller this is why I was so upset about um, about Michael Crichton being the comparison point for Paolo Bacchus' <laughs> The Water Knife. The near-future thriller sets up a world-changing event and then shuts it down. You know, if there's going to be, mm. to use Michael Crichton for an example, if there's going to be nanotechnology, it's, it's a bunch of crazy scientists in the desert, and we will shut them down before they get anywhere. You know, if, if they clone dinosaurs, we'll shut them down because we'll put them on an island. In other words, every Michael Crichton right. novel involves ending with exactly the opposite resolution of what a science fiction writer would do in the same position. If you look at Michael Crichton's novel Prey, which is his horrible nanotech novel, and compare it to, uh, to, to, to Greg Bear, um, um, blanking on Greg Bear's title right now. Um, Blood music? Yes, exactly. It, it, it's, it's a very similar story that goes in opposite directions. So what I'm saying in the both Daryl and um, and Genevieve are subverting the near future genre, the near future thriller genre, by playing it out as science fiction. They're both they're both science fiction novels. They're real science fiction novels. Um, but I think that I think it's a, it's a very bright idea from a literary point of view, from a marketing point of view. Are people who read Tom Clancy going to read these novels and be satisfied? I doubt it because. The changes that happen when a science fiction writer gets hold of that plot are changes that may be upsetting to people who think the the best thing we can do with scientists is to shut them down. Right, right. No, I see that. I see that. Hey, guys, I am looking at my iPad that I'm using, and I have 1%. Okay, well, let me. I'm going to run through the couple things I've got on my list. We'll get out of here, okay? Just quickly, (laughs) still on my list. Deborah Biancotti has a new novella, Waking and Winter Coming, from PS Publishing in July. Really looking forward to that. Deborah's become a a really interesting writer over the last while. And also, I know that uh, PS are doing a new Margot Lanigan collection, which should be interesting. I, uh, it makes my toes curl with happiness that Libba Bray's Lair of Dreams, which is the sequel to her, I'm trying to look at the, the, her, the Diviners, which I'm, really, uh-huh. I'm looking forward to a great deal. Liz Hand has a new novella, Wilding Hall, coming out from Open Road NPS. And a little Peter bit for. Yeah, Peter Straub. And a little bit has fr- a uh-huh. coming out from Subterranean. Yeah, and it's a slice of something else, though, I think. Yeah. It's a fragment of an unfinished novel, but it's, yeah. it's very weird. I mean, if yeah. people read Ballard and Sand- Sandrine, they will like this as well. And, and two later titles that I'm really eager for are Falling in Love with Hominids by Nalo Hopkinson, a new short story collection from Tachyon, and mm-hmm. House of Shattered Wings by Aliette de Bedard, which is her first ma- big major press novel coming from Penguin in September. And it sounds fantastic. So, yeah. 
But that's September. And that's there's, a there's one thing the two of you may know about that I know nothing about, but it looks like there's a new Michael Swanwick book from Tor coming out in August. That's a little It is. Passive. It's the new Dodger and Surplus book. Oh, that'll be fun. Okay, great. Yeah. Love the Dodger and Okay. And is that it? I, I mean, it, we it, have it, all it, my highlighted okay. titles. Email me, some, email me some lists. I'll chuck them up on the on the, the, the website along with this. Uh, given that you're, you're about to run out of battery, we'll say thank you very much, Liza, for making no, time. I know we've run over. It's been lo- and I hope we get to do it another three months. Okay. Excellent. I and like that let's idea. Let's make this a regular thing. Absolutely. And listeners, get out there to www.locusmag.com and uh, get your, have a look around, maybe check so out the issue, pick up a copy of the issue. Is that up now or is that coming up soon? That is March up. issue will be up. Okay. No, the, the Poland survey is up. There's a link online, and you can go and vote for the Locus Awards. Go and do your – the Hugo nominations are shutting down. In two weeks, yes. Very soon. So, yeah, go uh-huh. vote for the and, Hugos and, 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 you know, and some nominate. Of, and some of your favorites may not make the list if you don't nominate people. You don't right. have to nominate for us, like the Coot Street Podcast, eligible for best podcast, or you know <laughs> Eliza Trombi, edit, eligible for best editor short form, or anybody yeah. else. But – do vote for what you, what you support or nominate what you support because otherwise you, we will end up getting the ballot we deserve. Right. And for those who are online subscribers, I guess the new issue of Locust will be available within 48 hours or so of when we yes. record this. Yep. So there you go. Absolutely. And with okay, that, guys. thank you that again, Liza. Fun. It's been a great pleasure. Okay, thank you. Absolutely. And Gary, okay. next week? Next week, as usual. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye. <laughs>